Welcome to For The Win, the podcast that goes behind the scenes of the campaigns, people and strategies that changed Australia forever. I'm your host, Emily Mulligan. If you were in Australia in the 90s, chances are Simon Hunt holds a place in your heart, although you may not know it. He's a uni lecturer in sound, a music fanatic, a lifelong activist. He had an unsuccessful Senate run. Oh, and he changed his name officially to Pauline Pantsdown. He's unfortunate alter ego. But, like a lot of mail from, say, Aboriginal and Asian people at that time, which was their appreciation of me was that they found my song and presence gave them a conduit in which to laugh back at her. I've been thinking about the role of art and music in activism. The civil rights movement lives on today in the instantly identifiable music from the time. Briggs's hit January 26 is a much-needed punch in the guts for all of Australia, and Hannah Gadsby has just shaken the world with her stand-up act, Nanette. All art can connect with people in ways that reason never can. So who better to speak than Pauline Pantsdown, whose first go at drag was monstrously successful, who's had to pluck herself out of retirement in the last few years. Social media was invented in that period, and I wanted to ask Simon, who I first met more than a decade ago, what's changed. When you vote one nation out, my language has been murdered. My language has been murdered. My shopping trolley murdered. My groceries just gone. I don't like it. When you've turned my voice about, I don't like it. When you vote one nation out, my language has been murdered. My language has been murdered. My shopping trolley. Hunt, who some of you may know as Pauline Pantsdown. Hi, Emily. Good day, Simon. Thank you so much for talking to me today. Um... First of all, I want to talk about music. You may not remember this, but you are the person that introduced me to Erica Badu. You were the one that told me to pursue Curtis Mayfield's entire career. Um, <laughs> I want to talk about what music means to you. Music, um, oh God, music means all sorts of things to me. You know, I've been playing music since I was six years old and it's always been um, a passion and it's just something about uh the certain types of expression I've always felt I could only do in music even before I was doing political thing. But, I mean, you just mentioned, like, Erica Badu and Curtis Mayfield and all that, and and, and I guess that there is actually a crossover with that sort of music and, and, and politics for me mm-hmm. in that when I was, like, a teenager um, and working out that I was gay and I didn't have any access to any information about that, I actually got really obsessed with the civil rights movement and mm-hmm. um, 60s and 70s, black politics and read up and everything, which like led me to sort of James Baldwin, um, who was the crossover. Mm-hmm. And, and just um, that I've always had a fascination with um, art that comes from uh, American, African, you know, African-American culture, um, particularly the music and the way that that crosses over with politics in various ways. So, you know, it's been all sorts of things. I mean, I've, I've, I've written classical music and film soundtracks and all that. And then, uh, you know, it's really when I discovered sampling, I guess that's where it came, suddenly came to Pauline and mm-hmm. that was the first time I'd ever actually created something where politics and music sort of crossed over. But, but music is everything to me and always, <laughs> always will be. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I guess the other thing that sort of happened when you were growing up is that um, I've heard you say that, you know, being gay was illegal. Um, when you were growing up and when you were sort of coming of age, I guess, 
And um, I guess how did that inform how you sort of entered into the world? And it's, you know, I grew up in New South Wales and homosexuality was illegal um, until 1984 when I was 22 years old. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I, I was like a, a criminal facing sort of, you know, 14 years jail uh, until I was 22 years old every time I uh, had sex with my boyfriend, for example. So that sort of, uh, I guess that that, in some ways, it just gave me like an, uh, an understanding of an outsider status, which perhaps when I was like in the closet meant that I, you know, would feel marginalised and not able to really sort of take part or speak my mind. But once I was out, when I was like 18 years old, I think it's a, it's a useful position. I mean, there are things about the world and about, you know, human sexuality and relationships which only gay people can see. There are things about men that only women can see. It's like if you're in, if you're not in a completely dominant group in some aspect of your life you have a uh, you have a, an objective view mm. on the way society is put together and that can be a useful thing and that can feed into your art and feed into your politics and all sorts of things absolutely and um you were i think here in sydney um when hiv and aids kind of hit mm. in a big way it hit the gay community here in a big way it spurned a great deal of activism what do you remember from that time that was a a very I think that's a very strong part of my life and it's something that I maybe didn't properly realize at the time but I can see it coming through since then I mean HIV AIDS really hit Sydney um in a, in a big way in the, in, in the early 90s, in the beginning, at the beginning of the 90s. Though obviously it had been happening before, but when it seemed to sort of encompass um, the whole local community, when everybody knew people who were sick and dying, when, when we were all going to funerals and everything, was sort of from the very early the beginning of the 90s onwards. And so it was a very dark time, but it taught me many things in some ways. Um, First of all, the, the whole experience of uh, Mardi Gras and sort of gatherings of um, queer people at that time was when I really realised the power of community, that, you know, mm-hmm. that like Mardi Gras was really a gathering of the tribes. It was very much uh, uh, an important pivot point for a lot of people at that time to sort of gather in a dark time. Um, but, it was, I mean, it was also very important for me art-wise as well. Mm-hmm. I became very... Um, obsessed almost you'd see I don't, I don't I didn't have an education uh, a university education I, I um, uh, just sort of did a lot of study on my own at the time but I became very obsessed with the art that was coming out of uh, groups that were f- affiliated with ACT UP the mm-hmm. AIDS coalition, coalition to Unleash Power from uh, New York in particular like groups like Grand Fury and a few others and that they were fighting back people were fighting for their lives but they were using the mechanisms of the media at the time um in order to fight back, they were very professional with their staging of news conferences, political actions. They were appropriating art from from the fine art world, from the advertising world. They were making their own television programs very slickly, putting them on local television. That there was actually, you know, in a pre-internet time, that there was a manipulation and an appropriation of media itself in order to make political points. And I found that very powerful and and inspirational at that time. I mean, ACT UP weren't playing. They were 
um, pretty strong in their activism. They were shutting down roads and were super disruptive as well. Is yeah. that something you admired? Yeah, oh yes, no, very, very much so. And it was, it, it, but it was, it was the direct action, but also the acknowledgement that, um, you know, at the time that this was all about gay people who were like scum of the earth and, and you know, only barely legal and and um, that sort of thing, and not really a focus of uh, a focus as a group to sort of care for, say, within the mainstream media or even like a lot of um, a lot of the society at the time. You know, we were quite isolated. There was like a um, there was a pride in our communities, but there was a there was also a pride in separation in some ways. That the mainstream society is not going to accept me. I shall build my own world with my own venues, my own uh, values, my own practices. Practices, but then suddenly we were forced to a disease came along and forced everyone to interface with the hospital system, with you know, with healthcare in general. That we actually had to sort of find um, a place within that. And I found ACT UP, therefore, groups like ACT UP needed to actually get the attention. And so things like setting up a hospital ward on the New South Wales, New South Wales, Wales um, Health Minister's front lawn and things like that, actions which actually got attention, you know, that was one, for example, that actually led quite directly to an increase in hospital beds in inner Sydney for people with HIV AIDS. Um, so yeah, it was a it was a very strong group. It was a, it was people working very much out of desperation, but in a very intelligent and creative way. I mean, it seems like even just being queer you know, at that time meant it was inherently a more political act, I presume, than it is now. Like today, you could go you go work for Westpac and be gay, and everything's fine. And like then you may be a bit more inherently an activist. You had a choice really to hide or to declare yourself and stake your own ground in some ways, you know. I mean, as someone who was an artist, um, it was I obviously took the path of staking my own ground, you know, and that we were making art about queer stuff. We were sort of, you know, writing applications to arts bodies saying we are an underrepresented group and therefore you must fund us, and they did, um, and things like that. But, you know, if someone's... Um, that, that That's... You know, where I was in a position where, with people, where I was able to actually stake my own space, but most people couldn't stake their own space, and so you still had people um, who are in the closet in various ways, and that sort of darkens people's lives. You know, it makes you, uh, it takes away uh, feeling of self worth and things like that, and people, you know, were not able to be open. Whereas now, you know, most adults, and I stress adults, um, mm. are able to be open within within most within most worlds. Which is a good thing, which is as it should be, um, but it just means that the, the the work to do with you know is elsewhere now. Yeah, it's just different rather than yeah not there. So fast forward to nineteen ninety seven. We're talking like Natalie and Brulia Torn is on the radio. <laughs> uh, this redheaded woman called Pauline Hanson is. Um, Burst onto the scene saying some pretty abysmal things. Do you remember when she first sort of caught your attention or what it was that she said? I think like a lot of people, I saw the maiden speech being broadcast on television. There was the, the stuff that's come out since then, that she had been a Liberal candidate, that she'd said some stuff, that she'd been dumped by them, run as an independent one. That had all sort of gone under my radar. But it was this, it was the, the television excerpts of her maiden speech with, the, you know, the famous lines, we are in danger of being swamped by Asians, Asians do not assimilate, they form ghettos. Um, it was all that stuff that just suddenly came at once and then there was a, a media frenzy um, built around her with all of the major current affairs programs 
um, doing uh, doing programs with her, 60 Minutes. It all happened very quickly. So, yes, I, it was the mainstream media wave of her that sort of came to me at the time. And do you think all that media attention was just kind of giving her more airtime with these crazy views or like, it was, was, it, was it a bit more critical? Then? It was actually... Um, it was it was unnew it it received that sort of attention um, you know now we've got um, you know Andrew Bolt writing a writing a column saying much worse things than she ever did um, you know within the uh, largest news corporation in the country and probably half the country probably half the people in Australia don't even know that that article exists mm-hmm. um, but at that time it was racism was something that was. Uh, was regarded as you know not to be not to be spoken that there was a, there was a sort of a a consensus um, not that you couldn't be racist but it's just that you know to actually publicise this thing and put this in public um, was a bad was a bad thing and she sort of smashed her way through that wall you know she smashed her way through that and uh, so it was a it was a novelty it was a novelty thing in some stage. Most of the news was there was a mixture of uh, of critical com- there was a mixture of critical comment, um, and then the rest of it was just freak show stuff basically, mm-hmm. just knowing that it would call in viewers because it, it was something that that everybody was discussing. And so Simon here in Surrey Hills, you I mean this is before everyone had like a laptop I guess this is before uh, Garage Band, but. <coughs> How did you hack together <laughs> your songs? Initially, there was Backdoor Man, mm-hmm. uh, and then I Don't Like It. Mm-hmm. Uh, how did you do it before all the programs we're used to today? <laughs> well, I, I was like a... Um, my money jobs for the previous couple of years, I've been doing film sound design um, at a sound studio, um, and I was also like a casual... Um, a casual tutor and lecturer in sound at University of New South Wales. That was like my part-time job. And the art I'd been making in the couple of years leading up to that had actually involved a lot of cut-up. I was using like digital samplers from keyboards um, and before that a little bit of um, actually cutting up tape with razor blades oh and sticking God. it together and no. stuff. <laughs> uh, a bit of that. I'd done one with Fred Nile that way with actually a sort of a mixture of that and then I'd bought this cheap digital sampler and was actually able to play it off the keyboards but I had been making a lot of cut up pieces and actually you know as opposed to coming from the drag scene I'd actually come from this sort of radical um, lesbian scene that all my all my uh, flatmates were in called Wicked Women and they were doing all these like performances in the S&M scene which increasingly became more like a, a variety show with all sorts of um, uh, quite satirical pieces and different things and so I was and they'd have an annual Ms. Wicked competition. It was like sort of the lesbian S&M radical sort of take on Miss World. And um, so I was doing cut-up pieces of sound for their performances. So I'd sort of become quite skilled at taking voices and things out of media and rearranging them in different orders. And then when Pauline came along, I'd actually just... We'd actually just changed from working with reel-to-reel tapes for multi-track recording... Um, and we bought this new system with the Pro Tools software and I had to teach myself how to use digital editing software and so I thought I'll just take Pauline Hansen and I'll cut up something out of her voice so backdoor, I'm a backdoor man for the Ku Klux Klan was my sort of like test project of teaching myself um, how to do digital editing and cut up and I quickly found out that even though it's still in 1997 was... Um, 
fairly at a fairly primitive state. You know, if I wanted to change the pitch, I had to actually get the sound file and take it to a, a different program and bring it back again. But I did find, oh, this is much quicker than tape cutting. Oh <laughs> so <my God. laughs> it was, um, um, so yeah, that was my, uh, yeah, uh, the Pauline Hanson one was a, was a, um, it was a test project to teach myself how to digitally edit stuff on, on a computer. And um, I was, um, my friend Tobin Saunders, who was, uh, who still is a very wonderful drag queen, political drag queen called Vanessa Wagner, um, asked if, if, uh, if he could use the song within a show at a big party, big gay party he was doing. And I said, okay, well, look, I'll do Pauline, <laughs> even though, you, you know, I had done drag once in my life before or something. And so we took it to Triple J, um, said, can you just play this to promote the party? And then it became number one request every day for 10 days until Pauline Hanson took Supreme Court action and had it taken off air temporarily and blah, blah, range of court cases. So it was all sort of, it wasn't really planned, you know. Oh. It, was, it was like, a, I've got to learn this digital editing software. <laughs> um, then, it, then it was like, oh, well, let's do one of, another one of these queer performances within the queer community. And then suddenly it was like a, a national thing. Well, you know, I suddenly thought, you know, I've always been working in politics. I've been working in music. I've been doing the queer underground. And suddenly I've combined those things and, and it's somehow mainstream. Somehow resonated. <laughs> somehow it's res- resonated out in a big mainstream and that was a surprise thing. Whereas um, I don't like it a year later um, after after Backdoor Man was banned. I don't like it was very much a planned project where I planned for six months that I was going to make a second song, that we were going to have an election about this time, that I was going to run for government as Pauline Pants down for the Senate. Um, it was all sort of planned out and it, it all sort of magically worked in some in some ways and that, so that was like my six months of fame I guess that, that sort of ended up with her she lost her seat in parliament and I didn't get in either <laughs> <laughs> Pauline pants down senator I mean I think people do forget you actually changed your name and ran for parliament and bothered the hell out of Pauline Hanson in real life you were you were out there on the hustings so to speak um, <coughs> not just on the radio yeah, no, I think I think it's one of those things where, I mean, the thing about 1998, which which mm-hmm. um, I don't like, it was with the the federal election and the Senate campaign and the song, was that um, uh, uh, people would have dif- different people have different memories of what happened then. To 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 90% of people, it was just it was a, it was the novelty song, you know, with um, with Pauline Hanson and stuff. Like even one of my one of my fans on my Facebook page, he wrote something a few months ago. He said, "Look, I was." He said, "I was um, six years old when you did that." And he actually went to um, he went to Parliament House and they saw Pauline Hanson and he just ran up to her and said, "I really love your song." <laughs> <laughs> and so you know, so, so a lot of people was like it was actually Pauline Hanson or, or whatever. Whereas you know, the, the things about the Senate campaign and all that, I was really. Um, that was more about galvanising um, political speak and using my sort of five minutes of fame in order to get different perspectives across. So, you know, there'd be people that I was I was appearing at youth resistance rallies and then election rallies um, at different universities and things. And and I'd sort of researched Pauline Hanson really heavily. And so I was taking her actual stuff about her. Like I'd found out that she was paying... Um, the fish and chip shop staff less than minimum wage, and so I was sort of like telling everyone the figures about that, and just sort of um, yeah, using the moment in order to get to other audiences. But most people wouldn't know that was going on. We we're all 
there was one media then. There was the four, five TV channels, the two major newspaper chains, chains, a few sort of like little you know activist newspapers handed out on street corners, and that's about it. And so that was a very different time in that I was inserting myself into that mainstream narrative, and I think I sort of modelled it on the idea that that Pauline Hanson herself was uh, a constructed character, you know, in very much it was the American log cabin um, sort of fallacy of like, you know, I'm just this, I come from here, I'm just the person down the pub, I'm this and that. And it's like, well, yes, you know, um, but that doesn't mean you need to have sort of these racist and fascist policies <laughs> just because you come from somewhere. And so I saw her very much as a, a very careful construction as opposed to the natural person that she was putting herself forward as. So I thought, well, I can reconstruct that and turn it around within the same media, appear on the same channels, appear on the same TV shows, but just sort of um, invert it with a mixture of politics and humour. So it was very much, there was like one playing field and it was sort of, um, I, I hadn't, you know, I hadn't planned it that way, but I hadn't quite expected to get in as far as I did in that way, you know, that you had like a, a, a top ten single that was saying, you know, please explain why can't my blood be coloured white? I, I should talk to some medical doctors, coloured blood is just not right. You know, it was just, um, it was an unusual lyric to hear within the Australian top ten at the time. Yeah, I mean, um, uh, <coughs> I'd say that, like, pretty radical far-right politics is probably even worse now. Would you recommend laughing at them? Um, or, you know, you also kind of took a pretty considered approach as well with the facts and blah, blah, blah um, on your side. Do you think that um, humour is a still an effective tool to use to sort of shut down these radical and racist views? I think it's one of many tools, you know. It's sort of um, we can't shut down the resurgent far right at the moment with humour simply because um, we're moving into a time, we have moved into a time, but I think we're seeing a bit of an explosion at the moment where the facts themselves are so are so under question and and, um, and put into question in that we have this double-edged sword of, of uh, social media and um, uh, even more than social media itself, the uh, the... Uh, the supremacy of, of, of Facebook as a news dissemination uh, mm-hmm. source for most people um, in the way that, um, you know, as everyone knows that we're moving into these separate bubbles. And I think that's taking a very uh, dark turn at the moment uh, in that we have people growing, you know, if you, look at, if you look at the movement like the QAnon group where we're moving into a time where people actually have such separate news feeds that they're living almost an entirely separate universes Mm -hmm. and so there's different ways there's different forms of activism at this stage i think there's there must be attempts made to break through those two walls we can't actually just sort of go entirely across within our universe and so for for someone like me where you know i've got i had like a I, I sort of shut Pauline down for 15 years and then I reactivated her in 2013 and with a social media presence. And there's a dual role there. One of them is to actually write the humour is sometimes for my own people, <laughs> yep. you know, for, for our own side, that everyone needs humour, that if something is is alarming and, and, and hurting and dangerous, that sometimes we need humour actually to sort of get us through something, um, to give people like a conduit to laugh through, which has always been the case, I mean... Back in 97, 98, um, you know, I'd get a lot of mail and people writing to me and stuff like that. And there was a very much a split between um, uh, 
the type of way people would react to me according to where they came from. If somebody was like within a what Paul Ann Hansen would call a, an acceptable group, you know, sort of like you know, let's say Caucasian heterosexual men or whatever, then um, that the response from them was all like, "Hey, you're really giving it to her. That's great." But I got a lot of mail from, say, Aboriginal and Asian people at that time, which was their appreciation of me was that they found my song and presence gave them a conduit in which to laugh back at her. So it was sort of like they were using me as a path to be able to... felt a bit like they were getting back at her through me in a way. And so it was a very different response. But now it's sort of... Um, yeah, I think humour is always important. It, it, it's, sometimes it's about attracting attention, but it's also about how humour itself and its multiple forms, whether it's you know a twelve-word tweet or a, or a meme or a comedy act or a podcast or whatever, however it's put forward, is actually another way of taking people in and looking at things from from a different angle. You know, I can argue till I'm blue in the face that, um, um, for example, the entire um, the entire news agenda about transgender people in Australia is being run entirely off the science of 0.8 pediatricians of percent of, of pediatricians in America from a radical Christian group, and that's what's published in the mainstream newspapers here as the agenda. You mm-hmm. know, which is like uh, I think on the mathematics of it is something like 20 times less credible than anti-climate change science. Mm-hmm. Um, I can talk about that till I'm blue in the face, but people don't want to hear those facts and figures. You know, you need to actually sort of take them into that in some ways. Um, um, and sometimes uh, humour and humour, humour in a way is like reducing something to its basics um, and then taking it to a new level or satirising it. You need to simplify information in some mm-hmm. ways. And information, information itself uh, is simplified. It, it is simplified in that you know, 65% of people who comment on Facebook posts have only looked at the picture and the caption. They haven't actually clicked the link and read the article. Mm. And so information itself now comes down to a single image and a headline and maybe a one sentence that will appear underneath that. That's how 65% of people are forming their political opinions without reading the articles, which was used to devastating effect uh, during the Trump election campaign where, you know, there were headlines, fake headlines of things that were linking to articles that had nothing to do with that. And so the reduction, when we have a reduction of information, we need to use that reduction wisely in giving our own information. Yeah, and I think people on our side of politics also need to do the work to make our arguments as compelling in such a format. You know, mm, like mm. people only have a limited amount of time, you know, so it is really important that a lot of us sort of do that work as well and that's what you do a great deal now. So... Basically, from the ni- late 90s, Pauline, you know, went to jail. God bless, you know, her own electoral fraud or whatever put her there. Um, and then she sort of enjoyed, like, what, a decade of being on Dancing with the Stars and mm-hmm. was a host on, uh, a she guest had, on Sunrise. She, had, she, she had the big, she had the, along. She had the B-grade, I've always said that, this is probably getting a bit of an old joke now, but she had the B-grade career that I was meant to have after, <laughs> five, after my 15 minutes of fame, you know. <laughs> I was meant to be That's the right. one dancing on programs and appearing on panels and doing KFC ads and stuff, but, you know, she took that away from me. Very rude. Very yes, rude. Indeed. So then, I mean, to the detriment of the nation, she comes back um, and you make this decision also to sort of bring back Pauline Pants down, but um, the entire media atmosphere and um, media world in Australia has completely changed, as you alluded to. Mm. So um, it, your activism 
is sort of um, turned into you've you've built uh, a pretty strong following, and I think you're actually one of the few people that has like this genuine, authentic community online because you can ask people to do stuff and they are right there with you and they will actually get out there and do stuff in the real world I think mm-hmm. um and you're not um uh pay you're not an organization you're not a paid staff you you don't have you know flow charts on how this stuff should happen it seems like you kind of just do it and you're very connected with the community um and you're able to activate these people quite easily Quite easily sometimes, yeah. Sometimes, maybe. Maybe it's a lot of work. The goal for my own bat sometimes. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. No, it's a different uh, virtual port. This is, I mean, virtual Pauline, you know. I I, Mm. I guess virtual Pauline's been around since about 2014. And and, um, yeah, no, we're in a different, we are in a different world now. And I think it's with me, it's it's that thing about how I I revived her at a time where people were starting, I think, to become uh, cynical about the, about, uh, online activism. In fact, yep. that, that's the time, you know, the term armchair activist or, you know, or, or um, keyboard activist um, was invented. And so I think what I tried to, I mean, initially it was just a joke, you know, Pauline Hanson started a Facebook page. So I thought, oh, well, you know, I have to do one as well. And I sort of had this competition of who has the most followers and stuff. And it was just silly stuff. But then I started doing activism with people, which actually it was usually about not just trying to, say something's bad or, you know, someone should do something about this or let's start a petition. But it was actually trying to get some action taken, like something get some, do something would actually um, get results. And initially that was very much about using the actual mechanisms of Facebook in order to um, um, target particular uh, companies and organisations. And um, um, so I think it's, you know, I mean, I'm also like a media lecturer, so it was always fascinating to me about how these things work, you know, that if you have a company that is supporting a fascist group and then that they've got a, um, they've got, uh, you know, a favorability rating on their page that you can drive that down mm-hmm. and things like that. And a lot mm-hmm. of people are very critical of that sort of practice. And I think it's, uh, people are much more aware of that sort of practice now and it's happening on both sides, but sort of went in for that quite early, um, I mean, it changed me a bit in 2014 when I saw a little article in a classical music paper about a uh, an opera singer called Tamar Avery from Georgia, and she um, was coming out. She was out here, you know, like a couple of blocks from me in the practice studios, uh, um, rehearsing for to be the um, the lead in the uh, opera Othello. And and but I'd read about her um, is that she had. Um, Back in Georgia, there'd been like a, a very vicious attack on, on a, a very small um, gay rights group um, by a crowd of thousands. One person had nearly died. Many people had been injured. And she'd done this social media post saying that, you know, sometimes we need to break some jaws to move the, the nation ahead and, and things like that. A very sort of violent, um, very, very horrible stuff. And so and uh, I made a decision, well, I don't think that we should be paying her to star in Othello mm-hmm. um, out here as if as if that never happened, as if she hadn't called for violence against people in her country. <clears throat> Excuse me. But, um, so I, I did a very quick sort of three or four day um, activist campaign where I, I, I simplified the material, took some of the quotes from her, made a meme which went incredibly viral. Um, it went in then into the mainstream newspapers were calling on Opera Australia to shut it down. I had thousands of people going onto the Opera Australia page to do that. They sort of um, dug their heels in and then we targeted the 
advertisers and then it started to get more press and then it was it was all over four days and then I suddenly thought oh my god I've you know this is actually something is happening here I better contact the activists in Georgia and see what they think about me doing this because I'm very aware of that that there is a problem that when you stand up for people around the world you need to know that what you're doing is not just speaking to the people in the country you're in but you know you're not actually uh, endangering people Mm -hmm. in their own country and so I managed to track down uh, a couple of people who were on the bus and actually spoke to them online in the middle of the night and they were very much like, yes, please go for it, please do it. And here's some more information that refutes what she's just told as an excuse mm-hmm. to the media. She also did this. They translated documents for me. Uh, we targeted the advertisers, big mass. A couple of the advertisers said they were going to meet with Opera Australia and then on the Monday she was sacked as, and sent back to Georgia. And that was just this three- or four-day thing where... I thought this shouldn't happen and something had happened with it and it made me aware of the power of directed activism, organised activism with a set goal, uh, utilising the media of today as opposed to back in 1998 mm-hmm. trying to get onto the talk shows and um, but also that there's a lot of responsibility that comes with that stuff as well. And so since then, um, you know, there's been... I. Uh, orchestrated a campaign between several different groups to shut down um, a far-right anti-gay Christian group uh, that was meeting in Melbourne called the World Congress of Families, who are very much involved with um, uh, trying to uh, uh, keep laws that keep uh, gay and lesbian people in jail in countries around the world and stuff like that, and, and managed did a similar campaign more over a couple of months, but at this time I was using a lot more humour and memeing and storytelling to sort of keep people involved with it like a narrative and um, we eventually had them kicked out of four venues and they the goal of it was that government ministers should not attend this conference. Uh, mm-hmm. Kevin Andrews was the international secretary, Corey Bernardi was going to sell books there, there was going to be all sorts of politicians there and I thought this is not a place that our government representatives uh, should, should really be and we were successful in the end in uh, that we moved them to such a fringe venue that was... Uh, attached with a far-right group that the government ministers had to pull out. So it's sort of, I guess that's been my, uh, you know, plus a a series of actions I've done against the Australian Christian Lobby. They've been the main uh, political actions I've been involved with sort of via Facebook. And so to me it's always about actually trying to get something something done, something done that way to stop people uh, being oppressed and attacked. Absolutely. And you can move quickly um, because you're not really... um attached to an organisation, I guess, um, mm. and you can kind of say what you want because <laughs> it's your page, right? Like you're <laughs> not taking certain, government within money. Within certain boundaries, or, yeah, yeah, yeah. You don't yeah. really have a, yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. a, a brand no, no. Uh, that's, that's risk-averse at all, yeah, yeah, so yeah. you're able to say these things. Yeah. The other thing I was thinking was like what, what did you contribute or what was your part or analysis in the marriage equality um, debate? I mean, that's something that kind of, I mean, that's like a 10-year campaign realistically. Mm. Look at it. it was going on for a very long time. It wasn't just the survey. Yeah. But what did you see your role in, in that work? Um, during the... I guess during the postal survey period, which went on forever, I think it was like four months, but it felt like it felt like years and years and years. Um, I guess I was trying to see what I could do uh, differently from what was being done. Mm-hmm. You know, there's a lot of people sort of criticising the mainstream yes campaign, whereas to me it was like it had to be a patchwork of everything. The the uh, <clears throat> the official yes campaign were pushing, you know, this is your brother, this is your sister, this is like, you know. Uh, 
this is everyone around you, um, that positive sort of imagery and all that. They they had they had to do that. They had to do that. They had to be had to be had to be shown to relate to people in a particular way, particularly as you had this like wildly dishonest, sort of absolutely insane. Um, Dishonest is probably the main word, the campaign, no campaign. Mm-hmm. But then there was a gap there in that the no campaign had to be counted, but I didn't feel it could really be counted by the yes campaign. And so I was actually working on a lot of different levels during the postal survey. Via the Paul N page, I think I was really trying to um, push the cause um, and sort of uh, look after people who are really being left behind by that. I mean, the thing was that the the Yes campaign was talking about sort of um, men and women getting married to each other and the No campaign was talking about um, schools are going to turn all your kids transgender and all their dicks are going to be cut off and, you know, you're going to be... They were running a zombie movie sort of um, thing at the same time. Transgender people faced um, absolute sort of constant abuse and demonisation by the right-wing campaign, so I I decided I would focus on those sort of issues. Um, and then at the same time, I was also a moder- I'm also a moderator on, on a page called um, Equal Marriage Rights Australia, which is um, was just as large as the Yes Campaign's official page. We both had about three hundred thirty thousand people. I'm, I was one of five moderators for that. And what we were doing through that was actually we were doing like a, a fake new, a lot of fake news correction. We talked about how we had to play a different role from the official Yes campaign, and that uh, we started documenting all the violence. We started documenting um, all the things that were happening, gathering it together in memes and in lists and things like that. Because the No campaign were quite successfully getting a narrative of. Uh, all the violence is coming from the Yes campaign. Now, quite successful in pushing that not only through Murdoch media, but we started getting we started seeing a lot of um, on both sides type stuff coming from from Fairfax from the ABC, mm-hmm. and so we really worked hard to sort of actually document all that. And there was it all sort of coalesced at a certain point where I was on my Pauline page seeing posts from friends who were posting a picture from a friend who's had a SWAT sticker painted on their fence. And there was a couple of days where I really started gathering all that information and using my sort of, you know, 20-year-old B-grade uh, sort of celebrity status reach to actually, like, push out those smaller stories into a bigger narrative. I started pushing all those onto mm-hmm. Twitter. Some of the um, the BuzzFeeds and the pedestrians were picking up some of those images. And then I got... Um, then I somebody sent me a photograph of um, this anti-gay Nazi graffiti painted all over a Sydney train, and I started posting that. And um, Michael Coziel from from Fairfax contacted me, and I had just helped him sort of track back where that image actually came from and when it had come from. Um, but then he sort of gathered all of that stuff into an article saying, you know, outbreak of anti-gay violence across Australia, which I thought was an important article. It pulled all those little mm-hmm. incidents together. So with me, it was like I, I think I was as much as anything trying to be a megaphone at that time. At the same time, I was actually running like a. Um, but then I was indulging my humour by I, was, I ran a uh, a fake coalition for marriage Twitter page, um, which I was trying to push ahead as the real thing, and that's where I was, uh, I think, doing humour for myself in some ways because I found it, found it a pretty devastating time. But saying you know putting out um, press releases of things like um, uh, you know marriage equality will change the laws around barbecues and patios and, <laughs> and, and sort of giving all these justifications for that. And actually, I nearly managed to get Miranda Devine to withdraw a story at one stage based on her momentary belief that um, I was the real Coalition for Marriage page. Um, but um, 
so yeah, I was working on those three levels, but it was a crazy, 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 unnecessary, Good disastrous time. Mm, that's it. <laughs> yeah. like, long, like I hope we never see, do anything like that ever again. Mm-hmm. So um, let's conclude with um, what did Pauline ever have to say about you, Simon? Did she ever, did you ever meet her in real life? Did she ever... <laughs> Tell you her frank opinion. <laughs> my, my my actual encounters with Pauline Hanson are as, uh, the, when she was during the election campaign. Um, I back in in, in nineteen ninety eight, uh, she was campaigning at a bowling club in South Sydney, re- um, releasing some um, uh, her Easy Tax plan. <laughs> it mm-hmm. was a plan called her tax plan was a plan called Easy Tax, and um, I uh, confronted her outside outside the venue and then got blocked by David Oldfield and, and had a bit of a media circus and one of her heavies sort of kneed my cinematographer in the in the thigh and, and um, so everyone got the photograph of us together. So it was like a sort of a media photo moment. And then the other time I'd come across her was um, many years later uh, when she was launching, I think, her second or third autobiography. She's had so many. Uh, she was... She was um, uh, launching at a Pitt Street Mall, and she was doing a book signing outside, and I was with a friend, and I just thought, I don't think she knows what I look like, so I think I'll just go up and buy a book and get a photograph, because I wanted to have a, a photograph of us together. <laughs> so, you know, I bought the book, and we got so I got this smiley photograph of me and Pauline together, and she's got absolutely no idea who I am. But um, the the in in her book, she sort of, um, in her writing, she she's really just sort of complained about me, how I distracted from the real issues with her and things like that. But the only time I've ever heard something about her say something about me was in um, the uh, SBS documentary, uh, Please Explain, last year. Uh, it was like a major documentary that came out just around the time that she was re-elected. So it must have been 2016. Um, and she, she was asked about me and she said that I was an absolute idiot ratbag. And that's now uh, my Twitter bio. <laughs> Congratulations, Thank Simon. You very, thank you very much, Emily. Yeah, that's a really beautiful story. And um, honestly, imagine what the past, like, 20 years would have been like if she was able to just say whatever and you weren't there in drag. It would have been a much, much sadder state of affairs. Alternate universes. Here we come. That's it. Thank you so much. Thank Thanks, you so Emily. Much Great to speak to you. I look at it this way. I'm a backdoor man. I'm very proud of it. I'm a backdoor man. I'm homosexual. I'm a backdoor man. Yes, I am. I'm very proud of it. I'm a backdoor man. I'm homosexual. <laughs> backdoor. Clean up our own backdoor. We need to get behind. And we'll do trade with you. Thanks for listening to For The Win. Thank you so much, Simon Hunt. You can follow him everywhere on social media, at Pauline Pantsdown, and at me, Emily C. Mulligan, on Twitter. With any suggestions, follow us. um, And give me a review on iTunes if you're enjoying the podcast. Cheers. Join us. Be one of us. Come out. Be one of us. Join us. Be one of us. You must come out Be one of us. As long as children come across, I'm a happy person. Yeah. I'm very, very proud that I'm not straight. I'm very, very proud that I'm not natural. You know?